It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. We've got a lot of security news and an acronym for Java, which I don't think is official. Also, a warning. If you're about to install Java, there's something sneaky Oracle's up to. And then we'll take a look at something called memory hard problems. Too hard for me. Maybe you'll understand. Next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 388, recorded January 23rd, 2013. Memory hard problems. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist from Citrix. Take control of your IT world from one simple cloud-based platform. Provide live or unattended support to all your users from anywhere. Sign up for your 30-day free trial today at GoToAssist.com. Don't forget to use the promo code SECURITY. And by Carbonite Online Backup. Automatic, continual, unlimited backup of your computer files. Just $59 a year. Try it free at Carbonite.com. And use the offer code SECURITY NOW to get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your loved ones online, your privacy too. And here's the guy who does it all for you, Mr. Explainer-in-Chief himself, <laughs> Steve Gibson. We have a massive infotainment podcast for our listeners <laughs> really? this week, my friend. Really? Yes. An infotainment podcast? Yeah. I, you know, I've been listening. I've been through reading the mailbag and, and looking at tweets. People just enjoy the podcast. I mean, they appreciate learning something. They're also having fun. And, you know, and, and you, I think, help bring the fun to it, which is it's a good news thing. you can use. Actually, some viewer brought this this fun to it. Uh, I showed you this before the uh, show, and it is apropos today. Uh -huh. Keep calm and disable Java on your browser. You know, it's a play on the uh, the keep calm signs from Great Britain during the Battle of Britain in World War II. What did they say? Keep calm and carry on. Carry on. Yep. In this case, and it's instead of the royal crown, it has the head of Steve. At the, at the top there. <laughs> Looking down with some disdain. Yes. You're running Java in your browser? Yes. That's wrong. Well, it's uh, it's apropos because I guess there's another. God, I can't believe it. Hole in. Yes, and in fact, someone tweeted a great acronym that Java stands for. So we're going to briefly <laughs> delve into acronyms we love. I did a little research and oh, found. Fun. Oh my goodness, some my my favorite from the old days because I was actually a I was a Fiat owner twice. I I the little X one nine Fiat it again, Tony. And that I love that one. <laughs> or. Or uh, uh, fix. Wait a minute. Uh, uh, oh, uh, feeble Italian attempt at transportation. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and it Lovers. depends on depends on what kind of car you have because there's Ford Some also is found on road dead. I've heard of that. Or fix or repair daily. Fix that was always my daily. favorite yeah. Ford one. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll we'll have a few acronyms for you, and we're going to talk about now. Is this a typo? Memory hard problems. That's what the crypto industry has named it. Um, and I think when people understand what memory hard problems are, they'll go, okay, 
yeah, I can remember that. That you know that that terminology makes sense. Okay. Um, the uh, to give a, a little tease for what we'll be talking about after we catch up on all of the week's craziness. Um, the we're we're seeing clearly. We're talking about it always. People are tweeting me constantly. The the fact that people are building machines full of GPUs, graphics processing units, in order to create these massive password-cracking machines. They're also building them to mint Bitcoins oh. because, because Bitcoins are a hashing problem. Now, the problem with hashing is that one of the criteria for selecting hashes has always been that they be fast because we don't want to burden computers with a lot of work to create a hash. And for example, one of the one of the reasons that the AES uh, cipher, the Rheindahl, was chosen is that it lent itself, the algorithm lent itself to easy implementation both in silicon and in, in software. So the, the, while... All of those are good properties for ciphers and hashes to have. That's exactly what you don't want if you're using those to protect passwords. And that's why we keep now what the industry has done is it's said, okay, we're not going to hash the password once. We're going to hash it a, a thousand times or 5,000 times or something. And the problem is that you can't really solve the problem that way. That is, you're, that, that's a, a linear scaling of difficulty, and, and there are problems with that. So we're going to talk about the problems with that. Why just things like, you know, we've, we've talked about password-based key derivation, that, that PBKDF2, um, which everyone is using. But we're heading toward a new solution which solves the problem in a way that is much more robust and that's the domain of memory hard problems got it i guess so a great topic for for the week and oh all kinds of crazy fun stuff too can't wait security now is on the air get ready put your beanies on your uh, propeller heads and so, did you see, by the way, that two Bitcoin-based casinos did their annual reports and they made a lot of money? <laughs> I didn't know there were such things. I didn't either, but this is in Ars wow. Technica. Today, Satoshi Dice and BitZeno, uh, they they don't take money because, you know, in the U.S. it's illegal to do that. They take Wait, Satoshi was the name of the developer of Bitcoin. So that's probably where that name Maybe came from. Maybe Satoshi decided to cash in. <laughs> Uh, they uh, they uh, did apparently a half a million dollars in business. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, I, but is it money or what? S- Satoshi Dice is based in Ireland. It's a pseudo random number generator game. You choose a number, then bet on the likelihood that the rolled number is greater than the one they've selected. It sounds like Kino a little. I know. I don't know what it is. Oh, interesting. House has a one point nine percent edge. That's the profit. Day in, day out. <laughs> That's the beauty of these things. Wow. It's just math. Um, players put down 2.3 million bets. 
in May through December 2012. And so betting is with bitcoins. You bet bitcoins and you, you, and you are paid bitcoins. in bitcoins. Yeah, ah, I guess so. Interesting. Uh, and then the, then this BitZeno does poker, blackjack, craps, roulette. So 3.2 million wagers in the second half of last year. There so. was actually an episode of The Good Wife that I talked about. Uh, I think it was probably last year um, where uh, it was about Bitcoin. It was I mean, it was really? wow. the topic was the topic was Bitcoins and they were arguing in court whether it was a currency or a commodity because the laws differed depending upon whether it was one or the other. And uh, yeah, it's really interesting. No wonder, thought, you, wow, no wonder you like the this main, show. Holy hit, hit the mainstream. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm, I'm now caught up. I have seen all of the first three seasons that I had on disc and all of this season that my, my media center had been sucking in all season, even though I hadn't watched one. I am now 100% current. So <laughs> That's what he really did last week, folks. <laughs> he, watched, he watched TV. Oh. Admit it. Admit it. Busted. Oh. I get my life back. Now. <laughs> Are you as sure? Long as, I don't, as long as I don't crack open another Peter Hamilton, I don't know, multiple. I downloaded the audio book of, uh, of that uh, new Peter Hamilton. Have you read it yet? No, no, no. Yeah. I, I do have work. I have to, have, have to get done. I've got some... I've got some studying to do, actually, but uh, maybe after that's that's football football study. You've got to be able to know what's going on if you're going to go to New Orleans. Yes. It's even, take your eye off the ball, it says. That's how you pay attention. I have no idea. Um, This looks really good, though. This looks really good. But first, let's talk a little bit about uh, something that's not a gamble, something that's a sure thing, and I'm talking about... The folks at Citrix who do that great program, go to assist. If your job is support in software, uh, hardware, IT, you're going to love go to assist. It can take you and take you to the next level. In fact, if you want to become a managed service provider, this is the way to do it. Go to assist. Well, you probably heard me talk about it as a remote access tool, and it is the, the market leader worldwide. But they've added new features that make it even more intriguing for an IT professional or support person or somebody who wants to do that. They've got the remote support, best in the business, Mac to PC, PC to Mac. You can even support you know, from mobile devices, unattended support, eight sessions at once, all that stuff. But now they've got a service desk, which lets you manage, track, and resolve issues, and that integrates... With their new monitoring system, this is so cool. The monitoring is you put a uh, a crawler on your client's network, of course. Uh, this actually goes all over, detects all the devices, all the software even. You then have a complete inventory of everything running on that network. And from there, you design your dashboards. You can use canned dashboards or create your own to track things like, you know, memory and disk utilization, load averages on the network, on the servers, CPU averages. Uh, you can even, you know, things like, is the toner cartridge running out? <clears throat> and then these dashboards let you get a quick overview of your client's system and network and servers. Or you could set up, and you could set up alerts for proactive notification via text or email or instant messenger. <laughs> it's like the client's network is talking to you. It is a fan, and then you use the remote support, the ticket system, and so forth. You will be a support hero. I want you to try it free for thirty days. All you have to do is visit gotoassist.com. That's the name of the product. All three modules you can try them free for thirty days. Gotoassist.com. 
Click the Try It Free button. The promo code on this is security. 30 days free of GoToAssist. That is a great deal. Turn yourself into a support hero right now. Go to assist.com. Use the offer code security. <coughs> Excuse me. I got something caught in my throat here. Maybe it's just the Java software. <coughs> so so many people, I'll talk while you go fix your throat. Leo. Okay, please. Um, many people have asked for a sort of a summary of Kaspersky's big revelation of a little over a week ago, because this was on my radar for the last podcast, but there just wasn't time to cover it. So I pushed it to this week, and that is the discussion of so-called Red October, uh, named after the famous movie, The Hunt for Red October. Um, Kaspersky Labs discovered from, at, at the request of one of their unnamed clients, they discovered another massive long-standing, and by that I mean since 2007, some of the files that they've located are are date-stamped, and they have reason to believe that those dates are valid. So five or six years, there has been in place a very substantial spying network. It tends to be focused on on embassies and diplomatic um, uh, uh, facilities, um, largely in Europe and in the Middle East. Um, They believe that the code originates with Russian-speaking coders due to various hints throughout the code, some subtle, some not very subtle, like there's a batch file that immediately changes the code page, which is the way Windows interprets characters, into the a code page that, uh, that allows Cyrillic uh, characters. So, you know, that's rather obvious, but it's littered with little tiny subtleties that that say, you know, the coders were Russian. Now, That's, of course, circumstantial. You might imagine somebody else could have deliberately, like, chosen Russian-speaking programmers who are not in Russia to do this, but we don't know. The, um, by analyzing the, you know, everything they've been able to find, infecting machines, watching how they work, uh, creating sinkhole servers, that is their own targets. I'll explain how they did that in a second. Um, they've learned a lot about it. The All of the attacks start by either being phishing or watering hole attacks, meaning that either email is sent to somebody they want to gain intelligence from or websites which are not secure which are often visited by people whom they wish to gain intelligence from, will be altered with well-known exploits. It's significant that this isn't, from what they've seen, these are not employing the latest cutting-edge zero-day, you know, what's your Java flaw of the hour sort of problems, but often very old exploits are being used. Um, For example, once a machine within a a victim network becomes infected it uses a, what they des- what they describe as a lateral scan meaning 
within that layer of the network, meaning an, an intranet scan, uh, using the same old attack that Conficker, the Conficker worm used, and it's MS08-067. Well, the MS08 tells us how old it is. That was from 2008. And, and so what they're leveraging is the fact that probably in this geographic region, maybe more than others, there are many, many fewer Windows machines being kept current with security. Uh, they may not be legitimate. They may not be registered. They may not be, you know, a- have access to Windows update mechanisms. For whatever reason, you know, the, it, it's there. What they've seen is that these that this network is reusing relatively old exploits, but they are being highly effective. From the 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 phishing exploits that are used in email. Um, and in some cases, bringing up pages on the web that they're exploiting well-known uh, three or four well-known Word and Excel um, vulnerabilities, which have long since been patched, you know, in the West. Um, and you know, anyone who has access to Microsoft's, you know, second Tuesday of the month patching, but they're being very effective. In every case, the in the first infection runs what's now being called generically in the Trojan industry a dropper because it drops a file onto the system, which then that that dropper, the, 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 the dropped file, then contains the payload, which goes out and finds the command and control system, hooks into it, obtains instructions, URLs, and so forth for, down, for downloading other modules. Naturally, in, a, in any facility like this, which is going to be long-lived. And in this case, you know, from 07, we're, to, we're talking five years or six years, this thing's been around. It inherently has to adapt. It, it needs to remain as stealthful as it can so that it's not exposed. But it also, it, it can't just be some code written in 07, which is still going to be doing what they want in 2013. So, it's inherently modular and it is it's sort of organic in, in that as they look at different systems, they realize, oh, this was the here's an instance of older code that's still part of the same network that hasn't updated itself compared to the newer code. One of the things they discovered is that within each instance of this this initial sort of hub or root, um, there will be three domain names hard-coded in. Um, uh, For example, in one instance that Kaspersky shows, there was nt-windows-online.com, nt-windows-update.com, and nt-windows-check.com. So, you know, sort of innocuous looking. I mean, it does, they're not named we're hacking you sucker.com. It's like if you if you were looking and you saw, oh, look, you know, that's, I mean, who knows what Windows does anymore? So that's sort of believable. And in general, they found about 60 domains that have been registered to this network over time. When the thing starts up, it verifies 
that it has internet connectivity by trying to connect to the three legitimate websites, update.microsoft.com, www.microsoft.com, and support.microsoft.com. If it's able to do that, it decides that it currently has connectivity. And it does a number of very sophisticated things. For example, they divide the modules into those they call offline and online. The different, the, the, the distinction being that the so-called offline modules, even though they do communicate on the Internet, they, they, will, they will write things to the hard drive, whereas the, like the registry and, and log files and so forth, whereas the, on, the so-called online modules deliberately never record anything. So they're, they're like running within a different, think of it as a security boundary where they, they might be more vulnerable to be caught. So they behave themselves against monitoring. They're, I mean, they're just as <laughs> nasty as anything else, but they never touch the registry. They never touch the hard drive. So, so again, this, this demonstrates some real sophistication in 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 the overall architecture, you know what this, this re- reminds me of a little bit is Flame, which yeah. was the government sponsored, uh, our government probably sponsored, uh, cyber warfare tool. Is, yeah. Do you think this is the Russians' version of Flame? And if I mean it's the it, same it, age, it sounds like it's very well written. Yeah, I mean th- this kind of these level of details demonstrate that this sort of cyber espionage is not science fiction we've read several of the books that talk about it but you know this is actually going on now this is a mark racinovich novel in real life yeah um they have pursued this network to the best of their ability the problem is that there are chained encrypts encrypted proxy servers which have even now prevented Kaspersky Labs detection of the root master command and control server. Yes, yeah. So you, they can you, see where... Do you think this is ahead. private enterprise or do you, this sounds awfully governmental? It does sound governmental. This is, this is, this is, I mean, it could be a, it could be a private subcontractor. Well, but oh yeah. I mean, it's, but it's, again, it could be the Russian mafia. Uh, it's a lot of money's been spent. It seems well, like this... Yeah, and and they're looking at their targets. I'm not I'm not going to enumerate. If anyone's interested, just put you know Red October and Kaspersky into Google, and you'll find their pages because they've dissected this thing down to the molecular level. And there are things like listings of all of the embassies and the like, like spread out by by geographic region, um, and and the. The geography tells a story too. That is, since this was, this is a a so-called you know spear phishing or watering hole attack. There's there's reason to believe that this did them. You know, this isn't like Code Red or Nimda that just just promiscuously scanned the internet and infected everybody they could. You know, the the point is you you want to keep your head down if you're running a network like this, you want to stay off the radar. The last thing you want is Kaspersky to get wind of it, as they always right. seem to, because then you're blown. So this thing for five years or six years has stayed under the radar. It's been operating. And so one of the ways they've done that is to make the infections highly selective. They, they you know, this isn't just going, you know, 
registering on on everyone's scanners all over the internet. It they're they're selectively infecting specific individuals or offices or organizations from from whom they wish to gain intelligence, and they are absolutely wanting not to get detected. So, one of the very cool things about this is that. Kaspersky found, remember I mentioned there were three domain names burned into every sort of kernel of this malware. They looked at, they collected enough samples of it that they found five domains that had, not, that had been, whose registrations had expired. Shellupdate.com. MSGenuine.net, <laughs> Microsoft.MSDN.com, WindowsOnlineUpdate.com, wow. DLL-Host-Update.com. Oh, I'm sorry. It was uh, six. And Windows-Genuine.com. <laughs> and they registered them. So they registered... The domains that had so been clever, yes, that had been retired and expired, and they are now receiving tens of thousands <sighs> of connections Holy cow. from infected machines to their what they call sinkhole servers. Holy so they said, "Isn't that this cool? Is, oh man, this is this is like a spy novel. This is great stuff. It is neat." So they set up servers to on on IP on their own IPs that, that or probably some that they don't they're not associated with them just for safety and they registered those domain names which were in the spyware but which no one had bothered to renew that allowed them to acquire them they pointed those domain IPs to their machines and they started getting calls from from you know older malware that was still in place and then that allowed them to continue their investigation. So um, anyway, that's the story about Red October. It is a long-lived, keep its head down, try to not to get discovered. It's using old exploits, which are still startlingly effective, um, even you know, despite the fact that they're, you know, in the case of an 08 exploit, that's, that's going to be, what, five years old. This is for sure. So, th- and I've got to think it's the Russian government. Um, It is. Well, it's again, by once you discover it, you can see who they've been targeting. Yeah, they they, they're they're embassies. It's it's governments. It's yes. Yeah. And by the way, you know, they shut it down within hours of this report. Yep. (laughs) So. Yep. (laughs) This reminds me of the uh, the Anderson tapes where. uh, And so that's the other thing that happens, of course, is that because Kaspersky knows it's going to they're they're. Dis- disclosing it is going to k- kill it. They they wait to to tell anybody until they've gathered all right, the information right. that they can, right. uh, and then when they finally are ready, they go public, and the thing you know in, you know instantaneously dies. It's like the born identity. We're shutting yeah. this down. <laughs> Shut it down. <laughs> yeah. Terminate with extreme prejudice. <laughs> now, we wow. talked. Boy, it's maybe been a year about the really egregious mistake that um that the trend net webcams made remember that those were webcams that people were putting on the net that that 
were that anyone had public access to. When there, it looks like the webcam acts like a little web server, and when you connect to a web server, they the web server identifies itself. Well, that meant that you could scan port eighty. Uh, if it was port 80, I, I didn't go back and refresh my memory, but you could, you, you could scan whatever port these things were on. They may not have been um, standard HTTP port 80 servers, but you could, you could easily scan the net for whatever port they were listening on and inquire of them whether they were a TrendNet webcam. If they were, it was trivial to, to, to start receiving from it the imagery that it was sending. Well, what appeared on the net, it might have just been yesterday, was really frightening. And it's been taken down. Uh, Gizmodo wrote about it. The Verge wrote about it. I mean, it, it caught people's attention because what you got was a map of the world from Google with all of those little red sticky pin icons that Google Maps uses for the geographic location of every one of these still open a year or however long it's been since I last we thought we since this was in the news and discovered every single one of them that had been found and you could click on any of these little sticky pins and it opened a window <laughs> and you were looking into someone's bedroom oh that's handy literally <laughs> Find now, your neighbors. <laughs> I, I, I should have grabbed a screenshot of it yesterday. What's up now, um, I, when, when, when I went there checking the link for the podcast, I briefly saw the map and then it disappeared with a, a statement saying that Google was no longer servicing Google Maps for this domain. So the outrage over this immediately went to Google, and Google shut down their access to the Google Maps API. Some oddly, it's, it still comes up briefly, and then gets covered up by this message. So it seems like it's probably possible to work around it. But in any event, if you disable scripting, and I still had mine initially on from temporarily allowing it yesterday in no script. If you disable, if you disable scripting, then you get up a static page that just shows what I'm talking about. So if anyone's curious, it's cams, C-A-M-S dot H-H-B-A dot info. Again, that's cams, you know, HTTP colon slash slash C-A-M-S dot H-H-B-A dot I-N-F-O. If you go there with scripting enabled, you may briefly see the real map and then it will disappear. Yep, there it is, Leo. You're you're showing it in the video. Um, and if you go with if you disable scripting, you can see a just a static slide that they've put up saying that the site is no longer live and they have no intention of bringing it back. What? A, what? A, obviously, they just wrote a little uh, script. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, but I of mean, course, this hasn't fixed the problem with the cams. It just means it's harder to find them. Correct. Not even you that hard. A Google search finds them, right? I mean, it's oh, not, it's trivial. That yeah. yes, it's. I mean, it's really disturbing. And it's funny because TrendNet immediately after this said, "Oh, well, we've notified everyone uh, who has our cameras that uh, they need to update their firmware." <laughs> well, here's a picture of it, folks. Yeah. You know, see if you're I, on I the map. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Yeah. Oh, big improvement. Ugh. Okay, now the other big news 
is something that I'm so confused about what I can say that I have to err on the side of not not by mistake saying anything I can't say. Um, now I'm intrigued. I, yes. Well, this is about Google and YubiKey. Ah. Um, and I alluded to um, a meeting that I had with Stina. She was down in Southern California a few months ago, um, and that that was there was a reason that I I did a podcast on near field technology because I it was due and but it 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 I decided okay we need to understand what near field technology is and what what sort of leaked out ahead of schedule was that some guys at Google posted or or presenting a paper at the at toward the end of this month and there's not much month left so it's going to be soon that will be in the it'll be published in the IEEE Computer Society proceedings the paper is titled authentication at scale and um and so what i can say is that google is working on Solving the the authentication problem, and YubiKey is involved as as a vendor. Um, so Google is playing with YubiKeys, and I will be able to <laughs> I'll be able to sell to say more as more is known. I've not yet read the paper, although. Um, I spent an hour on the phone yesterday with Stina, um, and 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 we we jumped back and forth so much between you know oh you know this is off the record this is on the record that I have no idea what that's why I never do anything off the record because I can't keep track. Yeah. yeah. So uh, so a there lot is an of article, and, and maybe this will help you because uh, this is uh, once it's public, there, you know, then it's public. There's yeah. an article in the Verge. Saying Google wants to dish, ditch passwords, let you log in with the ring on your finger. Yes, and they're at Wired.com has one, and Technology Review have one. So there has been, you know, uh, you know, Google's alternative Google to the in, password. As Wired reports, Google envisions a new form of authentication that would let you quickly sign into websites with the help of a minuscule USB key. Its researchers have been fiddling with YubiKey graphic cards in particular. Yes. And found it only takes a few modifications to Chrome to get a seamless login process running smoothly. Okay, good. In that case, I can say that the cool thing here, you know, the the reason I just went crazy when I met Stina at the top of the escalator at the RSA security conference those years ago was that, you know, she said, <laughs> you know, I'm walking around and, and no one knew who she was and she'd been kicked out of the booth that that she that she had a, had a commitment to share with some deadbeat company um and so she said are you interested in security and i and here we are at the rsa security conference so that was a good bet <laughs> good, unless good guess. Un, unless i was just there for the buffets or something <laughs> so i said yeah and i mean she didn't know who i was and so she said what about authentication i said oh yeah and so she says you know this is a one time password that emulates a keyboard and uh, i mean i 
instantly knew as much about it as she did because I mean it was it, that's really good inventions are like that, and it was like oh my god this is fantastic and so but the but the beauty of it was because it was a keyboard emulator it was a USB keyboard in a little tiny dongle, it worked without software you just you know it typed for you into whatever machine you plugged it into. End of story. One-time password. Brilliant. So now, um, uh, okay, and I think so I can't there is an about- article. You know, Steen has written on her YubiKey blog at yubico.com yes. Uh, yes. an article describing uh, Google's vision and, and how YubiKey yes, might and, be part of that. And the abstract from Google's IEEE article says th- this is their authentication at scale. They said, and, and this is public, in working to keep cloud compu- computing users' data safe, we observe many threats, malware on the client, attacks on SSL, vulnerabilities in web applications, rogue insiders, espionage. But authentication-related issues stand out amongst the biggest when trying to help hundreds of millions of people from an unbelievable variety of endpoints, attitudes, and skill levels, what can possibly displace plain old passwords? No single thing, nothing overnight, and nothing perfect. A combination of risk-based checks, second-factor options, privacy-enhanced client certificates, and different forms of delegation is starting to find adoption towards making a discernible difference. Now, Stina's vision that she that is well known to anyone who has who knows Stina is they don't want to own anything. They don't want anything to be proprietary. They're completely happy to compete in an open market. She wants everything to be standards. She wants everything to be open. She wants no single point of failure, and and this collaboration with Google is really exciting because what what could potentially happen is they by making some changes to Chrome, they maintain the zero friction usage, you know, zero software installed. If you use Chrome, and I should mention, not the current YubiKey, there, there, there will be they'll they'll make deals for people who have existing ones to upgrade to a next generation. There, because there is some really good stuff in the next in the YubiKey that works with with Google. So, so it's it we we're not going to be able to use the same one, but. But the reason is that the technology needs to change a little bit in res- in re- in in return for that, though something really am- amazing happens. So, so what would happen is if all that Google would have to do to, after they take this out of pilot is say, okay, now everybody can use this, and that'll put pressure on any non-Google browser to support this because for all the obvious reasons, they, other, you know, this thing really could be the thing that catches on. So anyway, it's very exciting and, um, and it's moving faster than people expected.
So we'll, so I, we'll I love the idea. I mean, I presume it'd be two part. It would be the second factor authentication, not primary. Um, it's strong enough that it would be up to the user. Mm-hmm. But what they've what they've got is they've 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 come up with a way of of essentially achieving those goals. See, the the, the problem with you know VeriSign identity protection, unfortunately, is that it's VeriSign, right. you know, and it's expensive. You know, I mean, and and the people who get not the people authenticating, but the people being authenticated to pay per authentication a stiff price to Verisign. So and so, there's that problem. Then you have the 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 one ID people who say, "Oh, yeah, we can get rid of passwords completely." It's like, well, yes, if you change the entire infrastructure of the world, you you could do it differently, but. How and they want to own it. It's all proprietary. I've asked them for security documents, and they won't ever tell right. me how it works. Right. So I was like, "Well, okay, I'm, good luck with that." So, so the only way we know, the only way this can any solution can succeed is if it isn't owned by any one company. If it's a set of standards that are strong enough to really work, and and and, and for example, um. You could have multiple tokens. You, you know, in Stina's vision, you buy these things at Seven Eleven or Safeway. In the same way, you buy, you know, like, um, you know, uh, prepaid credit cards. These things are inexpensive. So you, so you could use one as your master identity. You could have a couple more for for pseudo identity, you know, pseudonymous identities. So, so you have all of the flexibility that we have now, yet. Yet a physical token, a physical hardware token, which would both be like like the YubiKeys that are now around, both near field and USB, so that it works on your phone if you've got a USB-enabled phone. And I have to think that Apple's going to have to fix um, – I mean, I'm sorry, if, if, if you have an NFC-enabled phone, I have to think that Apple's going to be fixing that with the next release of the iPhone because – Samsung is just having a massive party at oh, their it's, expense. It's so, and it's so awesome. <laughs> and there's so many things you can do with it. Yeah. So anyway, that's just, you know, it's, um, uh, uh, you know, Google has demonstrated, obviously, their clout. And they're, they've got a browser that people really like. And they're, it's, I'm wishing that it weren't burning so much of my RAM every time I fire it up. But, you know, so be it. Um, but you use Chrome, great. so you're, you're using Chrome now as your preferred browser. Uh, no, I fired up when I'm using the, the Google groups because you know their own groups work right. not, just a little bit better in Chrome than others. I just I'm still in love with Firefox. Yeah, I'm I'm still a Firefox guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Ed Bot uh, did a blog posting that I whose link I tweeted I think yesterday, which is really. Annoying. <laughs> um, Ed discovered that when you are upgrading Java, and and you it and you know he, and he he talked about how what I've often talked about. Uh, he was talking about the Ask toolbar. Oh, I this have, thing. Yeah. Yes. Now again, it's it's checked by default. If you are a person who just clicks the next button on the wizard in the lower right. You will leave it on, and you will get this thing installed. So frustrating. Now, and now, but get a load of this. Um, 
if you when it comes up to its confirmation of saying we're done, it'll say Java has been updated and the ask toolbar has been installed. Now you might go, what? No, no, no. No. So so a smart person, I mean, you know, any of our listeners would immediately go into the control panel and look for the ask toolbar in order to say no, thank you. Uninstall. Yeah. Yeah. Leo. They put a 10 minute delay in. Oh, that just sucks. So it sits in the background (laughs) for, for 10 minutes. Oh, they just are evil. What is wrong with Oracle? And then installs itself. Oh, that's just so th- that's malware. I mean, sorry, that's is malware. That unbelievable. That's malware. I'm sorry, that's it, not a. It is. It, it's un- unconscionable. Yeah. So, so someone realizes that they didn't remember to uncheck it, and says, "Oh crap! Um, I, you know, let me get rid of it." And it's not there. And they think, "Whoa, okay, something happened. It didn't, it didn't install. I guess it, it didn't work." So, whew. And then it sneaks in ten minutes later. Revolting. <laughs> Revolting. I think, or well, you know, not, the headlines are Oracle's trying to kill Java. You know, I mean, come on, Oracle. What the hell? Oh, geez. Uh, well, wow. let, this does kill Java. That's fine. Bye bye, Java. Yeah, Take it's it off. Had, Don't it's install been it. Bye bye. Bad time lately. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ah, well. So, um, uh, a quick note. Google added a service that someone tweeted to me I wanted to share with our listeners because, you know, there have been websites around from time to time that show you what your IP is. Well, now you don't have to go to a website. You just type into Google, what's my IP? And the first thing that comes up is your IP. Oh, here's your IP, by the way. And then the standard search results for what's my IP. So that's very cool. Just an FYI, a little tip for our users who care about IPs. Oh, and you do want to make sure you do it over HTTPS. Um, I don't know for sure, but that's why Shields Up, my own port scanner, uses HTTPS, and that is to bypass ISP caching proxies because that's the IP that non-secure connections see when you're behind when you're in an ISP who's using a caching proxy. You don't really want the IP of the, the, of the caching proxy, which is what Google, which is where the requests go to Google. And so the IP that Google sees, only if you are over SSL, uh, are you able to um, avoid the, the non-SSL caching proxy. Now, because we've got so much to talk about this week uh, and it's involved, I'm punting my discussion of mega upload AKA Mega. Oh, because I, you know, there's some real concern about how secure is it, and it's uh, they yes. claim AES, but yep. they're sending some. I mean, it's it's an interesting question. Okay, it is, and, and I so it's involved enough that I didn't want to do it. Uh, right. You know, I didn't want to shortchange anyone. Give so us the, the next, bottom line. Can, should we avoid Mega Upload? I don't know for a week. Okay. I won't know till next okay. week. I mean, as you said, it is so involved, and I just I, I I had it on my list of things to get to. Yeah, I you couldn't get to it, but I will definitely have a Good. complete readout on it. I do know that they're defending themselves against the about against all this flurry. There's right. been a you know a whole bunch, and and so I need to read read what everyone is saying, read their defense, and then I'll process it and let everyone know what I think. Great, thank you. A week from now. A week from now. Um, okay, so I also tweeted this. It's always interesting when I tweet things because um, people assume that I'm promoting what I'm tweeting when, in fact, I'm making sure that people who care know. So 
for people who care, <laughs> and our, our, our listeners know how I feel about Windows 8, um, the Windows 8 Pro special $40 upgrade offer ends on February 1st. And then it goes up to $199. So if I bet anybody... It, I, bet, I bet it doesn't. <laughs> My prediction. <laughs> Just going to make a prediction here. Well, it okay. It is. It is the. It's a Windows blog. Uh, there's the link there. No, they I, say I, it I, ends. I'm just saying. Yeah. Let's see what happens then. Yeah, it's like because uh, nobody's buying it, this piece of crap. <laughs> it's like Windows Seven security. Uh, you know, it's like. Well, in fact, uh, XP got extended because yeah. too many people are still using XP. No, nobody's like, buying Windows Eight, and uh, and making it two hundred bucks is not going to help it sell any better. Oh, so goodness. I have a feeling we will see. A, maybe they'll extend that offer just a little longer. So of course you can imagine. You know, people said, "Wait a minute, you you know you care about that? I thought you were a developer." Blah blah. Of course, yes, I get all of this stuff. You know, as my twenty five hundred dollars a year, I pay Microsoft for the privilege of having access to You're all these performing things. Performing so, a service for our audience. Yes, I just wanted people to know if they were thinking about it. Uh, in case it does go up on February first to two hundred dollars, you can still get it. That beautiful shiny. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the more the I use it, I've, I've been reviewing Windows 8 laptops. The more I use it, the more I wonder what the hell they were thinking. I know. It, Why, is, you know, it is awful. Leo, how about solving security? How about, you know... Well, they can do like, both. They can do both. It's not an either or. But No, you know, I mean, if they've, they've got resources, they're... they're so, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not spending their resources where I would have them spend them. Well, now... Yeah. I have to share this. Um, I'm a little worried that this got enough coverage that it won't be a surprise for every listener because Friday I was mentioning it to, to Jenny and her mom had run across the story. So I was like, okay, well, if Jenny's mom knows about it, maybe it's no longer a secret. But it's for, But I'm sure many people haven't heard about it, and it's just too wonderful not to share. So... This was posted on January 14th on the Verizon Risks Team security blog. Um, and I'm just going to read it because there's nothing I could, paraphrasing it won't work, and it's just wonderful. So this is a case study, the moral of which was the title of the blog posting, Proactive Log Review Might Be a Good Idea. So they said, with the new year having arrived, it's difficult not to reflect back on last year's caseload. While the large-scale breaches make the headlines and are widely discussed among security professionals, often the small and unknown cases are the ones that are remembered as being the most interesting from the investigator's point of view. Every now and again, a case comes along that, <laughs> albeit small, still... Are you chuckling in the background, yes. Leo? <laughs> Albeit small, still involves some unique attack vector, some clever, clever and creative way creative. that an attacker, huh? No, I'm just reiterating. Clever, yes. creative, yes. Clever and creative yes. way that an attacker victimized yes. an organization. It's the Shocking. unique <laughs> one-offs, the ones that are different that often become the most memorable and most talked about amongst the investigators. Such a case 
came about in 2012. The scenario was as follows. Such a good story. <laughs> we received, it's, it, you couldn't make this up, Leo. It's so good. We received a request from a U.S.-based company asking for our help in understanding some anomalous activity that they were witnessing in their VPN logs. This organization had been slowly moving toward a more telecommuting-oriented workforce, and they had therefore started to allow their developers to work from home on certain days. In order to accomplish this, they'd set up a fairly standard VPN concentrator approximately two years prior to our receiving their call. In early May 2012, after reading the 2012 DBIR, whatever that is, their IT security department decided that they should start actively monitoring logs being generated at the VPN concentrator. So they began scrutinizing daily VPN connections into their environment. What they found startled and surprised them. An open and active VPN connection from Shenyang, China. As in, this connection was live when they discovered it. Besides the obvious, this discovery greatly unnerved security professionals for three reasons. They're a U.S. critical infrastructure company, and it was an unauthorized VPN connection coming from China, in all caps. The implications were severe and could not be overstated. Two, the company implemented two-factor authentication for for these VPN connections. The second factor being a rotating token RSA key fob. If this security mechanism had been negotiated by an attacker, again, the implications were alarming. And three, the developer whose credentials were being used, was sitting at his desk in the office. Plainly stated, the VPN logs showed him logged in from China. Yet the employee is right there, sitting at his desk, staring into his monitor. Shortly after making this discovery, they contacted our group for assistance. Based on what information they had obtained, the company initially suspected some kind of unknown malware that was able to route traffic from a trusted internal connection to China and then back again. This was the only way they could intellectually resolve the authentication issue. What other explanation could there be? Our investigators spent the initial hours with the victim working to facilitate a thorough understanding of their network topology, segmentation, authentication, log collection and correlation, and so on. One red flag that was immediately apparent to investigators was that this odd VPN connection from Shenyang was not new by any means. Unfortunately, available logs only went back six months but they showed almost daily connections from Shenyang 
and occasionally these connections spanned the entire workday. In other words, not only were the intruders in the company's environment on a frequent basis, but such had been the case for some time. Central to the investigation was the employee himself, the person whose credentials had been used to initiate and maintain a VPN connection from China. Employee profile, mid-40s, software developer, versed in C, C++, Perl, Java, Ruby, PHP, Python, etc. Relatively long tenure with the company. Family man, inoffensive and quiet. Someone you wouldn't look at twice in an elevator. For the sake of case study, let's call him Bob. The company's IT personnel were sure that the issue had to do with some kind of zero-day malware that was able to initiate VPN connections from from Bob's desktop workstation via external proxy and then route that VPN traffic to China only to be routed back to their concentrator. Yes, it is a bit of a convoluted theory, and like most convoluted theories, an incorrect one. As just a very basic investigative measure, once investigators acquired a forensic image of Bob's desktop workstation, we worked to carve as many recoverable files out of unallocated disk space as possible. This would help to identify whether there had been malicious software on the system that may have been deleted. It would also serve to illustrate Bob's work habits and potentially reveal anything he inadvertently downloaded into his system. But what we found surprised us. Hundreds of deleted PDF invoices from a third-party contractor developer in, you guessed it, Shenyang, China. As it turns out, Bob had simply outsourced his own job to a Chinese consulting consulting firm. Bob spent less than one-fifth of his six-figure salary for a Chinese firm to do his own job for him. Authentication was no problem. He physically FedExed his RSA token to China so that the third-party contractor could log in under his credentials during the workday. It would appear that he was working an average 9-to-5 workday. Investigators checked his web browsing history, and that told the story. A typical workday for Bob looked like this. 9 a.m., arrive and surf Reddit for a couple of hours. Watch cat videos. 11.30 a.m., <laughs> lunchtime. 1 p.m., eBay time. 2 o'clock-ish, Facebook updates and LinkedIn. 4 p.m., end-of-day update email to management. 5 p.m., go home. Evidence even suggested he had the same scam going across multiple companies in the area. All told, it looked like he earned several hundred thousand dollars a year. 
and only had to pay the Chinese consulting firm about 50 grand annually. The best part? Investigators had the opportunity to read through his performance reviews while working alongside human resources. For the last several years in a row, Bob received excellent remarks. So what's the problem? He's doing great. Yeah, his code was clean. Very good stuff. It was was well-written and submitted in a timely fashion. Quarter after quarter, his performance review noted him as the best developer in the building. Oh, my. It would only have been, I mean, you know, if he hadn't given them access to the VPN, I don't, is it illegal to... uh, outsource your contracting work. I'll bet you that the employment employment agreements have probably has Maybe. something to say. If not, it'll be immediately amended to add yeah. to add that. He got yeah. he did what he said he would do. He provided the work. It was well done. It was high quality. Wow. Probably FedExing the the Ferrisign token wasn't so cool. <laughs> That's I mean uh, basically this you, you Sly Ferret nail, nailed it. Bob just promoted himself to management. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I just, I just took a drink of coffee, Leo. Oh, That's very good. Spit it out on the monitor. All he is yes. now he's a manager. <laughs> That's what managers do. Oh. I would have done yeah. it if I could have gotten away with it. <laughs> wow. If you see a Chinese guy hosting the show next week, you'll know what happened. Oh, no, thank you. So, okay, so this little dip into geek humor, geek humor, I have a couple things. Was, was prompted by an acronym for Java that we will wrap with. Um, first, though, I did a little poking around because as we were saying at the top of the show, I've always my, my favorite thing for Fiat was always feeble Italian attempt at transportation. <laughs> yeah. So it turns out there's a website of these. Um, and I, I just put some, oh, I put car acronyms jokes into Google and it found the website for me where I found some I'd never seen before that I particular and i don't know why these really this is i guess i I do like puns and for some reason puns i i have heard are considered the lowest form of humor but they just always tickle me so buick as big ugly indestructible car killer (laughs) i think it's pretty good but i have to say i found some for bmw that just give me a kick okay (laughs) so bmw stands for bought my wife (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> brutal money waster Ooh. born moderately wealthy mm-hmm. brings more women mm. and broke my wallet <laughs> so anyway people are uh, quite in- inventive there's uh there's a lot of uh oh they go on and some are really awkward you know like there was like y- um yamaha or, yeah, or the longer uh, ones are hard Toyota. yeah yeah Honda had one, never did again. <laughs> Hang on, not done accelerating. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> uh, that's from lotsofjokes.com. So, Java's official name henceforth. Yes. Because this is just too good. Yes. J-A-V-A yes. stands for, and thank you whoever tweeted it, just another vulnerability announcement. Oh, boy. Unbe- Wasn't there a no- another one, a new one? For some uh, reason, I think there was well, a new zero day. Unless, uh, you know, you get, after a while, it's just a blur. Oh, we're just dizzy, you yeah. know. Yeah. 
And um, I did like a tweet that I saw. I just love this demonstrates the, the caliber of geek people that we have. So uh, actually, the, uh, the the Twitter handle is Lethal Dosage One, the numeral one. Mm-hmm. And Lethal Dosage One, whose name is not in his profile, otherwise I would use it, said at SGGRC, Steve, you almost have 32768 followers. I hope you're using unsigned. <laughs> Otherwise, you go to negative one. <laughs> Wonderful. That's good. Somebody's paying attention. Wow. Yes, yes, yes. That's funny. Yep. Yeah, the, uh, f- for those who are not programmers, um, if you store a number in a 16-bit representation, you can have it be unsigned, in which case it's a, it's a simple quantity which can have any value from zero to 65535, which is the maximum, if it, which is, you know, 2 to the 15th plus 2 to the 14th plus 2 to the 13th plus 2 to the 12th all the way down to 2 to the 0th, uh, which is 65535. But you may want to be able to represent negative values, in which case the highest order bit, the, the bit 15 if you number from 0, uh, that was this so-called sign bit. So... If it's on, that if it's a one, then the rest of the bits represent a a negative value. So what would happen at six at three two seven six seven followers would be the maximum positive number you could represent with a signed sixteen bit quantity. You add one more, and that flips it over. It turns the sign bit on. And actually, then it becomes negative three two seven six eight, and it starts counting backwards towards zero from there. So, anyway, uh, nice observation. I thought that was I got a kick out of that. That's good. Um, okay. Uh, also in my Twitter stream today, someone tweeted me a neat picture. Uh, his name is Troy Thompson. And he sent me a, a, a flip it uh, link, which is a picture of a lab with, and Leo showing it on the video right now, of a huge table of laptops all running Spinrite at once. And the, the caption says something about, like, I think it, they're, they're running Spinrite on laptops, which will be raffled off. And so they will have, you know, the, the best, most, uh, tested hard drives ever. Anyway, so I saw that. I thank. I just tweeted back to Troy and said, "Hey, you know, thanks for that. That's that's a cool photo." And he sent me a link to a review that he wrote of Spinrite uh, in '07. So it's dated, but of course, as we have seen, hard drive technology isn't changing very much. Um, so I just thought I'd. Sh- I'm going to excerpt a little bit from from this. He said, uh, "The title is." Spinrite review by a fan. And and so he said, the Spinrite hard drive maintenance and recovery utility software by Steve Gibson of GRC.com has been around for years. I first encountered Spinrite during the summer of my sophomore year of college. This is my personal unbiased review of my Spinrite experiences. And I've snipped out a bunch there, but he's talking about drives and he says, hard drives are far from perfect. Instead, they are excellent at hiding the fact that errors happen and happen frequently. While the operating system is told the drive is flawless, 
The drive itself is frantically performing error correction on the fly, which we all know is true. We've been talking about that recently, to compensate for the fact that we're rapidly approaching the point where laws of physics are limiting what can be done with magnetic media, which, of course, we talked about. It's inherent economic pressures force companies to always store as much as they possibly can and probably go a little farther than they should. He says, by the time Windows system event log throws errors from a TAPI disk or other devices about error during paging operation or such, it's nearly too late. The drive has run out of ways to compensate for problems and has finally told the upper-level operating system, I'm dying here. Kiss the drive goodbye. Or not. Enter Spinrite, stage center. Spinrite, presently at version 6.0, as it still is today, as I write this, is still around. With over 16 years of history under its belt, and now we're at 20-plus, Spinrite has achieved a lifespan nearly that of Norton Utilities and other classic disk tools. Actually, I think we're now the last man standing in that regard. He said, and I must confess, and he has in bold italics, it works precisely as described. There are those who accuse Spinrite's author, Steve Gibson, of hyperbole and scare tactics and summarily state that Spinrite is mere snake oil. Say what you will of Steve's mannerisms. He is by far one of the most talkative tech podcasters I've heard. Spinrite's success <laughs> is not... me. <laughs> Spinrite's... I know, I'm sure he heard, he heard us both. <laughs> I've never been doing tech podcasts without you, Leo. He said, Spinrite's success is not attributable to slick marketing or fakery. It recovers data when nothing else can. One more thing for the geeks. Spinrite is a svelte... DOS and Win32 executable weighing in at a mere seven, I'm sorry, 170 KB, written in pure assembler. In my book, this earned Steve Gibson very high geek points. And then finally, under success stories, he says, I have used my copy of Spinrite to fix, in bold italics, at least two failed hard drives per year amongst my family. When a friend solicits assistance with a drive recovery, if Spinrite does the job, I urge them to purchase their own copy, too. Of course, everyone knows I have no problem with that policy. At Envisionware, we have a corporate site license, bootable from the LAN, very handy, and have used Spinrite to repair, again, bold italics, four failed drives per year on average, recovering data which was not recoverable by any other methods available at the Spinrite price point. We've recovered numerous laptop and desktop drives, and we've started running Spinrite on every new system before deployment, ensuring that the drive has been completely worked out before it hits the road. I've seen Spinrite run on an unbootable, unreadable drive that was actually making click-of-death type noises, where the internal motor driving the heads across the platters was making a constant clack, clack, clack as it tried to read. After several days of work, Spinrite had recovered enough data to make the file system readable so we could recover the data. The drive was completely dead by the time we finished the recovery. So, and then he goes on. He really understands how hard drive works, talk, talk, works talking about sector relocation events and relocate. Actually, 
our listeners would care about this. So I'll say, uh, I'll continue just finishing up quickly. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger unless you're a hard drive. A word of warning here. If a hard drive is nearly dead, Spinrite will often warn against running anything except a basic data recovery. This warning should be heeded. If a drive is marginally readable or is physically damaged to the point that heat or wear would kill it, Spinrite may very well be the last thing the drive sees. This is because Spinrite is best used preventatively. In my experience, Spinrite, or sorry, running Spinrite every few months is a good way to detect far in advance, he has in italics, that a drive is going to die. And of course, I absolutely believe that, that when you're running Spinrite, the smart system is really showing you in an, in an analog fashion how hard the drive is working to recover from problems that it hides. And the harder it's working, you know, it, it, it doesn't say it's going to die soon, but it shouldn't start working that hard. So anyway, continuing, he says, the most telling predictors of pending hard drive problems in my Spinrite experiences are smart sector relocation events or relocated sectors. Over 90, in over 90% of hard drives requiring Spinrite recovery, there are at least one sector relocation event recorded by Smart. You can monitor Smart statistics on your hard drives in real time from Windows using the Smart Mon Tools software provided at smartmontools.sourceforge.net. Note that due to the way Spinrite works, a marginal drive may trigger sector relocations during a Spinrite run. This is by design and as part of Spinrite's data recovery method. It's still a warning that the drive is showing early signs of trouble. I'd recommend running Spinrite multiple times at level four until the sector relocation events stop increasing and keep your backups up to date. So he says, rising ECC or seek error rates, a notable rise in ECC or seek error rates between Spinrite tests over a month-to-month time period can indicate trouble. And that's one thing that Spinrite shows on the smart monitor page while you're running it. Uh, And that if those do go up, that's an indication that the driver is having trouble. He says, my current otherwise flawless uh, S8ATA Seagate drive is sailing along in Spinrite now at an error rate of 1,000... 664 seek errors per now he wrote minute but it's actually per megabyte is what are the units that spinrite shows that's that way it's a constant it's a constant measure so it's it's 1664 seek errors per megabyte if that number goes up significantly like by 25% or more watch out and he wraps up with why don't you own it yet that's the real question if you're not a spinrite fan already why don't you buy a copy of Spinrite? There are a few people who should, who, there, he says, there are a few people who should not bother. You have daily backups of all your data and a spare drive on hand. So he's a little tongue in cheek here. You have RAID controllers or your own SAN, which is backed up. Or three, you don't mind losing your data. Seriously, he says, it's that good. So, wow, Troy, nice, thank you nice very much. Compliment. That's great. Very nice, and that's the same guy who had the pictures of the uh, laptops. Yeah, it, it, and, and well, scanned. that's how I found this review. I had never ah. seen the review before, but when I thanked him for posting the cool pic, the cool link of pictures, then he sent me a link to his review. So, yeah. very nice. Um, 
I was happy for that. Thank you. All right, we're going to talk about memory hard problems in a second. But since you mentioned backup, I thought I'd mention Carbonite.com, the great backup solution for Macs or PCs that has three chief attributes. One, it's automatic. You don't have to remember it. It just does it all the time. Two, it's continuous. So it's not every week. It's every time there's a change to a file, it's backing it up. And the third and most important point, it's off-site. It's in the cloud so that even if a real disaster strikes, you know, something, something bad, uh, you still have a good backup. Now, I'm not saying don't buy Spinrite by Carbonite. You should have both. But I do want you to try Carbonite, unless you're that guy who says, I'm all backed up and I got a spare drive. Go ahead. <laughs> Die on me. Go ahead. I dare you. It really is planning for a disaster. It's a disaster recovery plan, and that's why I love uh, Carbonite. I put it on every laptop because, you know, when when something's moving around a lot, it can get stolen and get lost. It's easy. It's hard to back it up because, you know, it's never at the uh, desk. Carbonite's perfect for that, perfect for any computer. Try it free for two weeks, Mac or PC. Just go to Carbonite.com, click the uh, Try It Free button, and use the a security now offer code so that Steve gets credit. Now, if you decide to buy and you've used security now as the offer code, you'll get 14 months instead of 12. And here's the best part, $59 a year, a year for everything on your hard drive. That's less than five bucks a month. There are bigger plans, all flat rate plans, but they're bigger plans for business, home plus, home premier and all of that. Uh, give it a try. I think you're going to like it. Carbonite.com. Use the offer code SECURITY now. If you don't have a backup strategy that's absolutely bulletproof yet, this is a great place to start. Uh, memory hard problems. Not hard memory, memory hard. Right. Okay. Um, so, uh, as I said at the top of the show, when we were talking about our, our topic for the end of the show, which is where we are now, <laughs> the problem is that... We are currently using existing crypto technology in a way it was never really meant to be used. Um, someone sent me, uh, I must have been a tweet because um, it's short and I don't think I saw it in the mailbag. I don't, so I don't, may not have been a listener, but the, the person tweeted, if my bank locks me out after three misses, why do I need a hard-to-use password? That's and, a fair you know, question. It is, absolutely. And we, our listeners know that the reason is not that your bank is actually going to sit patiently by while you guess passwords day and night through the web browser interface, which itself in, imposes a huge penalty in terms of per-guest per time. The problem is that we see ridiculously. I mean, now this is the. I mean, it's it, almost as often as Java is getting a new zero-day exploit. Somebody is losing control of their password database. It's happening all the time. So the problem is, if your bank lost access, that is got hacked, and and hackers acquired the the. Hashes. First of all, if the bank weren't hashing the password, if it was just storing the in the plain text passwords, well, they instantly have every account is compromised. But that that requires really bad security practices. Most times, the bank is hashing the password, so that means that that they're they're storing something 
which is a one-way function. You can, for, given the password, you can get the hash, but it, you cannot go the other way. There's no key. It's not like a cipher where you can decrypt what has been encrypted. The hash is a, is a, is a lossy, it, it's an information lossy process. It doesn't attempt to retain all the information. It attempts to create a fingerprint of the password. It's like the, this password gives you this hash. And so the point is the bank, if the bank only stores the hash, then they don't know the password. They can't mail it to you. They can't give it to you. The only thing they can do is if you provide it again, they can compare it to the one they have and see if it matches. And if it does, it's almost certain that you are the person logging in. Not absolutely galactically positively certain because it is possible to have a so-called hash collision where different things input result in the same output. But the chances of that are diminishingly, vanishingly small. And this is why the password, the hashes have so many bits. If you had a 256-bit output from the hash, you'd have to have all 256 bits come out exactly identical. And just statistically, that's ridiculously unlikely. So it's safe. The problem is that the hashes were designed to be executed quickly. So, so in, in answer to this person's tweet to me, the danger is that the bank would lose its hashed password database. And then bad guys could, using big monster arrays of, of graphics processing units, which have been custom programmed to, to run these hashing algorithms fast, could pour millions, truly millions of passwords in looking for matches against the hashes. And, and so that's the problem. It's not, it's not that someone is going to guess your password trying to log in. It's that the bank will lose control of its database. And then the bad guys are, if you have easy passwords, which are, are going to be found through that, through that massive bulk guessing game using graphics processing units, then, um, then someone can log in as you the first time they try and take all your money. So to, to thwart this problem, the current best practice is to use something called PBKDF2, which is an awkward acronym for password-based key derivation function. A, the, the hash we were just talking about is a very weak version of that. A stronger version is to do it many times. The idea being you take a salt of some kind, which is hopefully just a random junk. It's, it's, it's like for every user account, a random number is a random, it's called a nonce, an N-O-N-C-E, because you just ask for it as just a piece of, you know, it's like a big cookie. It's just a blob of randomness. You append that to the user's password and you hash it. And you, 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 you append that blob of, of randomness so that the same password doesn't always hash to the same result. So you can put in the user's database 
in the clear, in you know, public. This is the nonce that was used. It doesn't really matter whether that's secret or not, though it's it convenient if it's secret, but doesn't have to be. Just the idea is we want to make it something that helps make the outcome unique per user. Then you take the output from that and from that hash, and you may append the nonce to it again if you want, but then you hash it again. And you then you take that output and append the nonce to it if you want and hash it again. And so you iteratively hash this maybe 5,000 times. Now, then you take the result of that as the user's hash. So what, what does that do? Well, when the user is logging in and, you know, puts their password in, then on the server end, it, it does this same process 5,000 times that it did when the user created their account. So it's going to get the same result using the same nonce, the same number of iterations, same password, out comes the same answer. So you can test it. The reason this is better than only doing it once is that bad guys have to also do it 5,000 times. They have to duplicate what the bank does in order to, in order to know what the password is that you put in to get the right thing out. So that slows down the brute force cracking by a, by a factor of the number of iterations, 5,000, for example. So that's a good thing. But here's the problem. Hardware is getting faster. It's getting smaller. It's getting more powerful. You know, we've got people boasting about, and we've, we've seen pictures we've talked about, you know, like racks of PlayStation PS2s, all programmed to crack things. Um, hobbyists are building machines that are nothing but graphics processing units with, you know, Freon being poured over them in order to keep them cool because they're running so hard and so fast and they are, they're, they're doing hashing. That they may, it may be a crack station or they may be Bitcoin mining where a hash is the way you mine Bitcoins. The problem is, I mean, this is really is a problem. Actually, it's a problem for Bitcoin that, that their so-called proof of work in, in, the, in the Bitcoin currency system, it's called a proof of work because you, are, you, you require a certain amount of work in order, to, in order to create a Bitcoin from thin air. Unfortunately, they used a, a problem that was not memory hard, that is a hash. So the problem is that it, it, you can scale with more hardware. You, get, you buy more graphics processing units, you're able to produce more hashes. Okay, so we need to talk about parallel processing and pipelining. Because the weakness of iteration, anything that is iterative can be pipelined, which is a neat trick for speeding things up. Pipelining was first, it first appeared in early mini computers. Um, the way computers used to work is they had very simple hardware that went through steps. You, it would fetch an instruction, the next instruction from memory. Then it would decode that instruction. 
to figure out what it should do. Then it would execute that instruction, and then maybe it would store a result back in memory, depending upon whether it was an instruction that was writing to memory or not. It might just add something in the accumulator and not do memory. But the point is that it, that execution took these these three or four, fetch, decode, execute, store, fetch, decode, execute, store, fetch, decode, execute, store. It, it took those, those individual steps, and everybody was happy. It's like, wow, we got mini computers. Then they, of course, wanted more speed. And they said, well, this is fine, but we'd like it to be faster, please. And the people making them said, oh, well, if we make it faster, we can charge more. So we need a next generation idea. So they thought about it. And they were already, already, of course, each of these steps was as fast as they could make it. They, I mean, they were, they were fetching as quickly as they could. They were decoding as quickly as they could. They were executing as quickly as they could. So they couldn't make those any faster. But they realized, hey, you know, those three steps, the fetching, decoding, and executing, they're separate. That is, say we fetch the first instruction... And while we're decoding that, we fetch the second instruction. And then while we're executing the first instruction, decoding the second instruction, we fetch the third instruction. And while we're executing the second instruction, we're decoding the third instruction and fetching the fourth instruction. So you see what happened. They, they overlapped those individual stages so they could so that each of those aspects, the fetching part, the decoding part, the executing part was busy all the time. It used to be that they were only one-third busy. You're, you know, the, the decoder was idle during fetching and executing, and the executor was idle during fetching and decoding. But by, by, by overlapping them, they got three times the performance from the same hardware at the cost of a little more complexity, but suddenly this thing was three times faster. So that this was the birth of pipelining. It's called a pipeline because if you think about it, if you think of like fetch and decode and execute as connected boxes or a pipe, instructions come in and they get fetched, then they, then they move to the next stage and they get decoded, then they move to the next stage and they get executed. So they're moving through this pipeline and when the pipeline is full, as it's called, then it's you're you're finishing an ex, you're finishing an instruction every single cycle, just as you're fetching an instruction every single cycle instead of every third or every fourth. So very cool. But look at the password-based key derivation. This you can do the same thing with it. If you if you use some salt and you hash it with a password, you get an, you get a result. Then what do you do? You do the same thing again. So imagine of instead of just looping that one algorithm, if you're in hardware, you pass that to the next hash chip and then it passes it to the next chip and it passes it to the next chip. And you've got, say, 5,000 of these. That's, you know, it, the way chips are these days, it might, you might have 100 on a wafer and so... So you've got 100 hash functions on one wafer, and you only need 50 of those in order to get 5,000 hash functions. Now, the first time you put something in, it's going to 
it's going to take 5,000 moves to get all the way through. But if you put another guess in to, to the front end every single chance before long, after 5,000 steps, this machine you've made is now spitting out answers at the same speed as a single iteration hash. So we have completely defeated our password-based key derivation function, which is iterative, by it's called loop unrolling. We've unrolled the loop into a linear array of, of hashes, and, we, and we've created a pipeline. We put guesses in the front, and nothing comes out for 5,000 cycles. Then results come out every single cycle. And this thing runs at full speed, just like there was no iteration at all. So that's the problem, is we're facing a world where people really can, in their living room, in their, you know, in their garage, have hardware that could do a 5,000 iteration password-based key derivation in hardware. And we're, we're back to square one. Now, they're prevented from doing 5,000 thousand different guesses at the same time with that so we i mean we've slowed them down a bit but the point is this doesn't scale well or or i should say from the hacker standpoint it does scale the way they want it to it's not sufficiently difficult so what do we do how, how can we prevent that well what we want to do is we want to standing back a bit we want to raise the cost of computing a password. So cost comes in different forms. You could have the temporal cost, that is the, the, the cost in time, how much time it takes to do it. And that's what the current iterative PBK DF2 approach solves for us, is it, it makes it more time costly. But the other aspect is hardware. And that's what we're trying to make expensive. The problem is now is that the algorithms we're using are not hardware expensive. They, they were designed to be fast in software and, and almost elegant in hardware. They, they can be, and so you can de develop like field programmable gate arrays, FPGA chips that are just, just bang, you know, create um, and, and compute a hash. So, so, the overall cost is the time it takes times the cost of the hardware. And we know that what is expensive is real estate. On, on a chip, when you make chips from wafers, the, the bigger they are, the fewer of them you can put on a large wafer because the, the wafers are typically big, round, maybe six-inch um, uh, wafers that, that, that then have the same pattern in a grid and you throw away the ones that are not whole around the circular edge and you get all the ones that are square in the middle. Clearly, the smaller they are, the more you get per wafer and that directly affects the cost. So we want something which is somehow expensive in, in physical size, so, something that, that forces us to use area. And one thing which uses space, which algorithms don't use, is memory. Storage, 
we've done everything we can to make it smaller. It's the the limits of physics have been put uh, have been pushed. Memory takes space. Me- if you need memory, then that's going to make your chips bigger, or you're going to need many chips. And then you're going to need to talk to the memory, and that's going to mean interconnection between your your processing and the memory. And suddenly, this whole the whole problem of computing something skyrockets um, by you know on on orders like two thousand to twenty thousand times, and it's future proof. The problem with with something which just uses tiny chips to see and sees how fast they can go is that they keep getting smaller and they keep getting faster and they keep getting cheaper. And so it's, it's cost effective to use more of them. And if you've got any kind of a process that can be done in parallel, then you're in trouble. So, so what we want is memory hard problems, not hashes. Hashing could be involved but we want something that we cannot fool. And that's where the crypto comes in. Something that cannot be fooled where the whatever it is we do requires, it requires a huge array of memory and there's no way to cheat. And the cool thing is, it turns out it's simple. Um, and here's an algorithm. This is this is sort of a simplified version, but it's enough that you can get your hands around and I can describe over the podcast and you'll get it and it's all you need. It works. And that is you take a, use a hash function, use whatever we want, SHA1, SHA256, whatever, doesn't matter. And we we fill a large region of memory with pseudo-random data derived from the password. So we take the password and hash it. Out comes 256 bits. Store them in the first area of memory. Hash it. Hash that again. Salt it if you want to. Mix the password in again. doesn't really matter. Hash it again. Store that. Hash it again. Store that. Hash it again. Store that. Fill the entire realm of memory. And we're, you know, we're in, in the gigabyte realm. So we've got gigabytes. Let's do four gigs. Fill four gigs with this with this pseudo-random data based on the password. So every time this is done, this with the same password, we'll get the same array of noise. Now, what we need that so that's part one. What we need is some way to prove that all of that memory was filled and present all the time. That is, we need a, a system that we cannot cheat, that there's no way to do this with an you know, old scratch pad somehow. So what we do is we then take the password and hash it as the same way we started before. This time we take some piece of that hash, maybe the high end, the middle, the low end, and we use that to address into the array. So we use that as a pointer into the array and take the data there and hash that with the first hash value. The output of that is another pointer into the array. And we hash, we, so we look up what's there 
and and maybe XOR it with the password, whatever you want to do, hash that and take part of that as the pointer again. And so you can see where we are. What this does is we have filled an array with pseudo-random bits, huge array. Then we are jumping in a pseudo-random pattern throughout that array, and where we go is based on what is stored there. So the only way when we're done is to, to have the final result of this is if everywhere we went, we found what we expected to find in that location. We don't know in advance any of this, except that we know that when we're finally done, we end up with a value. And we know that anytime we put the same thing, the same starting value in and do this to it, we're going to get the same value out. And we also know that the only way to do that is if, is, is if that memory is physically, statically present in its entirety as we madly jump around it many, many times, getting the data where we land and using that to tell us where to go next, which is all pseudo-random. So, so our path through this array is fixed for a given input, totally unpredictable, and we have to have all that memory there. Now you could say, well, you really don't. You know, you could, you could do this massively computationally where you could instead look up what's supposed to be somewhere and then go back to the beginning and, and run all the hashes in order to compute what's there and then use that to jump to somewhere else. Yes, you could do this with no memory at massive cost of execution time. And so the idea is that there is, there is a, a time and memory trade-off, but by, by, by pulling this out of a purely, a purely algorithmic mode into a, into a mode that requires lots of memory, the only, I mean, this is already going to be slow. And so it's ridiculously slow if you try to emulate four gigabytes of, of stored pseudo-random data, not by storing it and then bouncing around through it, but by actually having to iteratively compute the value that would be stored somewhere in that four gigabytes and then, then to have to do it again. So it, it, this thing, it, it solves the problem. There's no way, because you, you're needing memory, which is physically large, FPGAs, can't be employed. You, it's going to be slow to do it once, but but feasible to do it once. And in fact, this is the technology. A, a variation on this was developed by Colin Percival, who is the author of TarSnap that we've talked about for his cloud compute, computing solution. He uses this technology. It's called Script, and it's been it's been adopted by the IETF. And will be becoming a an internet. It's on the way. It's on track to be becoming an internet standard in the future as as the way to to securely um, protect passwords from some from brute force attack. So it's very cool. Oh, and there is an alt, there, there's a competing currency to Bitcoin called Litecoin, and Litecoin uses this too. So I got a little bit of a kick out of it under 
on, on, on the Litecoin pages, they talk about how they're using S-Crypt for their proof of work. And the advantage to existing Bitcoin miners is that your GPUs can be still left minting, trying to mint Bitcoin because they're of no use minting Litecoins. Your CPU is the only thing that can be used to mint Litecoins. And the cleverness, the beauty of Litecoins is they've got a non-hardware scalable proof of work. So somebody with a fast CPU is just as capable of minting Litecoins as anybody else. You don't have you, the because Litecoin didn't do the the simple hashing. It's the simple hashing which created this ridiculous Bitcoin mining frenzy, where it just isn't worth regular mortals trying to mine Bitcoins anymore because we haven't converted our whole living room over to air conditioned, you know, Bitcoin mining systems. So very cool. Wow, that's really neat. <laughs> and what is this other coin again? Litecoin. So L I L I T E. L I T E. Yeah. So yes, there is what, another. Does it make a currency. difference if there's more than one? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's the same idea as Bitcoin, right? It's the same idea. It's uh, you know, th their page talks about some benefits, and they know about Bitcoin. They refer to Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. They just think their coin is better. They're trying to create an alternative to Bitcoin. A coin of a different realm. They say a coin that is silver to Bitcoin's gold. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and it's very cool, though, that they used um, the S-Crypt technology, this approach, yeah. which a GPU is no use for. You yeah. cannot use, you cannot mint Litecoins with a GPU. It just can't solve this problem. Your CPU can, but there's a, I mean, the, 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 it, it, so, so the point is, their proof of work, the Litecoin proof of work based on S-Crypt, based on this, this memory hard problem, is a much better thing to ask people to do because it's – see, what's happened is it, the, the hash has just been exploited. Right. It's gone crazy. I mean, there are companies that make Bitcoin mining boxes right. for, for people who, who want to do that. And they're always being obsoleted. You buy one today and it's obsolete in a month <laughs> because, you know, someone came out with a faster way to hash. Huh. You cannot that, – that, that won't happen. So you can't cheat on this one. This is no, no. way. Exactly. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start using Litecoin then instead of Bitcoin. And, and similarly, you cannot cheat on using this as your password hash function. It's going to take time, and there is and no, you know, roomfuls of hardware can make it faster. It's just gonna it's gonna it's gonna be expensive in memory. It's a memory hard problem, which is not to say difficult. Is that what the hard comes from, or is it some other? No, you're right. It's not difficult. In fact, I was just able to explain how it works. So, I mean, you know, I could explain how this works, where I'd have a difficult time. Well, I guess I have explained how hashes work, but you know, there are things that are way more difficult that are not hard. <laughs> Which is completely different from a hard end, but we won't. Or get as into my that. dad used to tease me with, "Odd but not peculiar." <laughs> You want to know odd but not peculiar? I'm sitting here. I'm watching my mouse move around, people pulling down menus and stuff on the screen, and I can't figure out how the heck can I rush over to make sure because it's a new the new Mac and I install it. And I rush over. That's what I was doing while I was a little distracted. I, I rush over to see 
you know, if the firewall's on, yes, it is. Is sharing turned on? No, it's not. What the heck? And then Chad said, yeah, I just borrowed your trackpad. I was trying to use it. <laughs> <laughs> It's a Bluetooth trackpad. He's, he's wireless. Like, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that shoot. mystery explained. Steve Gibson is at grc.com. Great place to go if you want to uh, find out more about everything he talks about on the show. In fact, if you have a question, go there, grc.com slash feedback, and you can get some clarification about this or any other topic that's on your mind. Uh, I know we'll have some Java questions for next week. <laughs> uh, and probably a few about memory hard. Uh, he also uh, does a lot of other stuff there, including, as you know, his Spinrite program. That's his bread and butter. You can get that from grc.com. And lots of freebies, too. Lots of great free stuff. New and one coming a new, soon. a new service to be announced mm. on the podcast next week. Our listeners will mm. learn about it first. Follow, uh, follow Steve at, on Twitter at SGGRC. And, yes, make uh, my number go negative. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny if it did? <laughs> I'm following number one, negative one. That'd be very funny. And uh, we'll be back here next Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1900 UTC, to do the show all over again. Episode 389 will be, I guess, next time. Yes, Q&A. A Q&A. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, everybody. Bye. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Bye-bye. Security Now.